I'm sitting on the balcony reading Flannery O'Connor with a pencil and a pen. He placed himself in the order of signs, which is to say that God in the Christian tradition makes a physical sign of himself. This song is like a rain cloud that keeps circling overhead. And there it comes around again. Hello, everyone. Hello, Antonio. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Florilegium. I wanted to ask you, what is liturgy? Because it says it in our blurb as to what we're doing. We're looking at liturgy. And why is it important? And why do you like it? That's a great question. Liturgy is the order of worship in the church. It literally just means the, the sort of order in which worship happens. When we're talking about liturgy, are we just talking about words and forms or are we also talking about gestures that go with it? Your question is, is it just words? No, it's it's the whole panoply of the body, the way the body moves, the gestures, the things you wear, the colours, the day. I say with the things you wear, it's you know the things the priest wears, the, the, the person in, in office, the placing of the bell, the the use of incense is liturgy it's the form of worship you know in in any kind of way that humans can make signs it's been adopted into the liturgy um however some of the things that we take as as given the liturgical vestments are just what were the general norm in uh, the early church so and one example of this i think given by dom garanger as well is the washing of hands before the consecration in the mass so that's when the priest washes his hands and then handles the the bread and wine that will become the body and blood of Christ. You know, is it's acknowledged that that starts with a practical as a practical gesture that mm. you just needed to clean hands in order to do that. But it's now become a part of the liturgy. It's no longer seen as something that you do if your hands are dirty. You do it because it's an accepted form, which then can be unified, can be can be shared between the whole church, so that everybody can follow the same form. I guess that kind of goes into my question about why is it, why it's important because I, I think liturgy is also a word that specifically applies to Christianity rather than other religions. Why do we place importance on liturgy and why is it that lots of Catholics don't know necessarily what liturgy is even though they're obviously participating in it? Yeah, two really good questions. The first thing that comes to mind, and you're right that interestingly even though it Liturgy is a word, it, pre it predates Christianity, the word, but now it's used primarily as a, in terms of Christianity. It's understood differently in a Christian context. And my best answer to, for why that is and why that's important in the Christian context is given by a priest from the beginning of the 20th century called Maurice de la Taille, who said of Christ, he placed himself in the order of signs, which is to say that God in the Christian tradition doesn't just speak from on high, but makes a physical sign of himself. So by being incarnated, by becoming incarnate, by becoming human, he places himself in the order of something that is particularly human, which is trying to use the world around us to signify to each other, to find meaning, to create meaning, to form order of what feels often like chaos or is actually chaos in some sense you know, is the world as it should not be. And that's why we have language, we speak with our mouths, everything about the way we sign, we signify, we find meaning, is physical, is embodied. And Christ places himself right in the centre of that. And in fact, makes a sign of his body for us. What is the symbol of Christianity? It's someone with their arms outstretched. It's a person who has become a sign. Their whole body, their whole being has become significant of something more than themselves. And that's so fundamental to Christianity that when we then 
remember the things that Christ did with his body, like the Last Supper, breaking the bread, sharing the wine. Those things are not just, you know, trying to get at some transcendental meaning. They are themselves the direct imitation of the centre of all meaning. So just as significant as saying the Our Father that we're taught by Christ. Um, they say, teach us to pray, and this is what he teaches them. He also teaches us to pray in these in these physical forms and make meaning in these ways. So when we follow the liturgy and when we understand it, or not even understand it, when we follow it, when we're part of it, we are praying with more than just our words and our intellect and our minds. You know, we're, we're praying with our entire being, with our entire bodies, which is what Christ did. Does that make sense? It does. It's really interesting because I think uh, criticism often levelled at Christianity is that it's not very bodily. That the form of worship is, you know, we go and we sort of maybe we stand up, we sit down. And I remember a friend saying to me, yeah, but I want a religion that I can really get inside. I want a religion that my body can experience. And so she was really drawn to more of the Eastern practices because they are more obviously in the body. But what you're saying here is that our bodies are participating and our bodies are participating in this sign making which is happening in the liturgy at mass and is also happening probably outside of mass in that christ became a man and so when we are doing things he may also have done them i don't know is that link into it too like are our bodies liturgical no that's probably not right well can i just are our bodies more important yeah. than we might think in catholicism yeah, yeah, hundred percent. It, it is radical in an affront in many ways to the idea of God, the understanding of God in in so many other forms of religion and worship and belief, to say that God was man. I mean, that in some religions that's an abomination to say that that God has a body. So I think as Christians, you kind of have to almost start there. You know, that's the thing that's that's the kind of rocket that's come out of the sky and interrupted whatever people's belief or believed or thought about the world. You know, God became embodied so that those who are embodied could become or come to God. That's a sort of paraphrase of, of uh, I think, Athanasius, an early church father. What you said about the body being liturgical, in a sense, we might say that the body is sacramental. And what I would mean by that is that the fact that we have sacraments at all. So let's think about sacrament of baptism. Um, the sacrament of the Eucharist. These are all things that use the physical world to make a sign of a fundamental change that is happening, right? A, tra a transformation, a transformational change through grace. We can't point at grace. We can't find a physical place for grace. You know, can't say, oh, there, well, let's, let's talking about a person. That's <laughs> grace. But we, but we use what we can of our bodily experience in the bodily world to show a sign of that. The thing that the church says, which is, goes even a step further, is to say that those physical things are not just pointing towards what's happening, but they are a fundamental part of that transformation. So we don't just use water as a symbol of grace. The water itself is sacred. So the material thing actually becomes sacred in the in the sacrament of baptism. So that's one of the things where the body is is, is acknowledged as like a fundamental sacred part of of any kind of worship. Yeah, the church is saying um, you cannot worship without your body, or without acknowledging without that being a fundamental part of it. And the and the last thing I'm going to say on that front is that one of the ways of understanding sanctity and sainthood is the gospel embodied, right? So it's not just a kind of passing on of um, of the words of the gospel, but it's a living it out so that your entire body becomes the gospel, becomes a sign of the message of Christ or a sign of Christ that you can literally be read. Thank you, Kate. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah.
Thank you for answering. Can, can I just can I just ask you as well, what do you understand by liturgy or how, what role does it play in your life? I think it's an integrative thing. I think that quite often I have a tendency to become scattered. I think part of being an actor before was that I was very good at jumping into being different people and kind of thought it would be easier to be a chameleon than to be a one person. And I remember at one point having this decision to be thinking, I'm I'm really fed up of splitting myself into all these different characters. Um, and I want to be more integrated because, you know, I look like one person. And I think that liturgy really helps me with that integration um, because there's something about, you know, getting up and doing morning prayer and then going to mass, doing evening prayer that just re- orientate me into oneness you know that mean that my body and my mind have to try and do the same thing and be in the same place I think that helps or has helped a lot just with a kind of daily a daily question of who am I and what am I trying to do does that make any sense it makes a lot of sense yeah yeah that's a really interesting and and also kind of unexpected I wasn't expecting that answer but uh, but it makes complete sense it made me think about the recognition I had a few years ago of what was happening um on you know at least on one level going to going to mass or going to pray or going to whatever it might be that you'd often go in one mood and come out in another not because of some kind of complete bodily overtake of emotion or experience but because of simply being interrupted and it's interesting that you said you have friends who say they want something that they completely can be engrossed in and taken over by i think that that's very understandable particularly because at the at the moment that's an em- there's an emphasis on that being how you understand yourself you know you learn through kind of ecstatic experiences almost mm. times when you're not when it, there's the mundane and then there's the times when you're discovering you know, the transcendental whereas I feel like there is a, a much closer when I engage with liturgy there's a much closer relationship between the mundane and the mm. transcendental and that comes in part just simply from going in one direction maybe reluctantly going into the church or sitting down with the office and feeling just that little subtle reorientation from the interruption because your prayer is not just your own. So what you said kind of resonated with that. Do you think that there's anything you were expecting me to say that I haven't said? I remember when I first got to know you and I was definitely in the camp of I have no idea what liturgy is. And I kept trying to kind of ask you, like, what's liturgy? And I basically didn't really understand what the fascination was with it for you. Um, like I understood, okay, it's the form of the church, but like why that was um, mind blowing or a big enough reason to convert, I didn't really understand for a long time. And then I think you explained it in terms of signs and sign making and being creatures who are sign makers. And that blew my mind. And then I was like, aha, <laughs> liturgy. That's why it's important. I love hearing you talk about why liturgy is mind blowing and why it's, yes, mundane in as far as, okay, this is. This is what we know as the way of practicing our faith in some senses. This is the this is what you get brought into when you get brought into the church. But having that real sense of what this is doing, uh, yeah, I found really radical. I was once having a chat with Rowan. Oh, yeah. So I was supervised by Rowan Williams. We were, Enfield Thesis was specifically about sacramentality and liturgy in the poetry of David Jones. And we were once talking about Exeter Cathedral. And we were discussing the similarities between a cathedral with you know, it's various different structural parts that you can, you know, and and little side chapels all over. It's just completely scattered, full, thick with these signs of different parts of the Christian world and the Christian story. 
And we were comparing it to a mind palace. And mind palaces might be something that's more familiar to people today. It's just a memory trick, basically, where it enables you to, to remember more because you set up a certain place that you know. And if you say you had to remember the lines of a poem, you as you mentally walk through this place that you know very well, you can put a little symbol that represents something that's going to help you to remember that line of that poet of the of the poem. The famous pop culture demonstration of this was um not that recent really, but in Sherlock, the character of Sherlock Holmes, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, has this incredibly detailed Oh no, it's not him, is it? It's well he does have a mind palace, but this villain, can't remember his name, has this very, very detailed, in-depth mind palace. Uh, where he literally has files that he can draw out, but it's all in his mind. Now, a cathedral in many ways is like that, but just manifest, just actually material. Because you walk through a cathedral and you see a pelican, and the pelican is bending down with its beak piercing its own breast. And that symbol, it immediately reminds you of um, the parts of the Old Testament where the pelican, the mother pelican, is used as a sign of self-sacrifice because she pierces her own breast so that her young can feed on the blood. Which then immediately links to the also the story of Christ in which his side is pierced by the, the spear. And in this, you're, you know, just by glancing up on your way through the cathedral to this sign, you're suddenly flooded with these uh, incredibly rich stories, but also a sense of, well, there's some connect, connection there then. I'm not just looking at a picture of Christ and getting a literal reminder of that story. I'm getting a reminder of it through this symbol of the bird, which is in the Old Testament, which is a foreshadowing of this um, great sign that's going to happen through Christ's life. Uh, and all of that is being given to me in one glance. And so in many ways, the parts of the liturgy, the, the whole liturgical world of signs is a a way of making these remembrances of the story that informs the whole meaning of our lives in, a, in an instant, in a moment in a tiny gesture. And not only that, but making links between them as well. Does that make sense? Yes, and it's amazing. Um, thank you so much, Kate, for, wow, just taking us through liturgy. And to you listeners, thank you. That, that answer maybe took slightly longer than you were anticipating. Um, so I think maybe to have some time to reflect on all that wonder, um, we will have a music break. And I think it would be nice to play the song which you hear is the intro and outro of this podcast, which is Carnage to be by Nick Cave. And rolling through the mountains like a train. My uncle's at the chopping block Turning chickens into fountains I'm a barefoot child Watching in the rain That stepped into this song Taken a bow And stepped right out again I'm sitting on the balcony Reading Flannery O'Connor With a pencil and a pen This song is like a rain cloud That keeps circling overhead 
so that was Carnage by Nick Cave. And we are back now and going to dive into what should be the main part of this podcast with the gospel for the presentation, which is Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 40. And after that, we will hopefully get time to talk about Seamus Heaney's poem, St. Kevin and the Blackbird, and maybe even to throw in a bit of trivia about birds. So we'll begin with reading the gospel for the presentation. When the day came for them to be purified, as laid down by the law of Moses, the parents of Jesus took him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, observing what stands written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male must be consecrated to the Lord and also to offer in sacrifice in accordance to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now in Jerusalem, there was a man named Simeon. He was an upright and devout man. He looked forward to Israel's comforting and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he had set his eyes on the Christ of the Lord. Prompted by the Spirit, he came to the temple And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the law required, he took him into his arms and blessed God, and he said, Now, Master, you can let your servant go in peace, just as you promised, because my eyes have seen the salvation which you have prepared for all the nations to see, a light to enlighten the pagans and the glory of your people Israel. As the child's father and mother stood there wondering at the things that were being said about him, Simeon blessed them, and said to Mary his mother, You see this child? He is destined for the fall and for the rising of many in Israel, destined to be a sign that is rejected, and a sword will pierce your own soul too, so that the secret thoughts of many may be laid bare. There was a prophetess also, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was well on in years. Her days of girlhood over, she had been married for seven years before becoming a widow. She was now 84 years old and never left the temple, serving God night and day with fasting and prayer. She came by just at that moment and began to praise God, and she spoke of the child to all who looked forward to the deliverance of Jerusalem. When they had done everything the law of the Lord required, they went back to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. Meanwhile, the child grew to maturity, and he was filled with wisdom, and God's favour was with him. Having just chatted a lot about liturgy the um now master you can let your servant go in peace just as you've promised because my eyes have seen the salvation the nunc dimittis which simeon says after um well when he takes jesus into his arms and which is prayed every evening at compline and just thinking again of how much of the liturgy is taken directly from the Bible and gospel passages and the the words of it so that you're saying those words in the context of a particular set of prayers, but those words also link straight back into the gospels. It is actually, yeah, it's quite amazing, which um, because I I don't know if it's the same for you, but precisely because it's part of the office, it has that familiarity when you read it that you almost, that you feel sort of a deeper connection to it, almost like these words are mine. You know, I say these words. So mm. when I hear them said in the voice of Simeon in this gospel, I kind of go, oh, these familiar old words that I know that are in my heart. I guess that's what it is. I mean, it's interesting, of course, because of our conversation that we just had, the bit that stood out to me there was 
you see this child, he is destined for the fall and for the rising of many in Israel, destined to be a sign that is rejected. And just that phrase, destined to be a sign. I suppose we'd be more used to the phrase to make a sign or to offer a sign or, you know, those are the things we look, we say to God, you know, offer us a sign. But the fact that he is the sign mm. is what stood out to me there, a sign that is rejected. And then I've always been really thrown and astonished by the interruption there, um, and a sword will pierce your own soul too, because it's um, so immediately personal. And I don't know, I suppose you just really feel the grief. Well, and also just at this moment where it also has said, and the child's father and mother stood there wondering at the things that were being said about him. So it's that sense that, okay, yes, Mary has said yes to the angel. She said yes to God. She said, let it be done for me according to your will. She's had him. And yet they still don't quite know what this means. They don't know how this is going to play out. There's this sense that here's some other people telling her about her own son and telling her about herself and what she has said yes to. And that that's kind of shocking at that moment of having a month and a bit old baby to be told that a sword will pierce your heart too when you're holding this tiny little, tiny little creature. That's amazing to put it in that context because it, it that is one thing that isn't said in the text, but you're right. That is the image that's being presented to us. I also agree with you that it's really fascinating to think about that line included in there of the child's father and mother stood there wondering at the things that were being said about him. And you think about all the times when you hear that Mary pondered these things in her heart. And I remember hearing a, a, a sermon once by Father Fergus Kerr saying that uh, there's a question a theological question about how much Jesus understood of his own ministry. And he said that there were times when he thought, as you read the gospel, you can see him learning about himself. One is the in, um, exchange with the woman who says, even the dogs eat the crumbs that are scattered under the table. And that Father Fergus Kerr saw this as a, a point of Christ learning exactly what his ministry was and who it was for. And I think that's fascinating to think of this as not being kind of like a Superman being planted in the world and going, I'm here, but kind of having things having to unfold and unfold. And the same for Mary, having to understand as things happen and having to observe and be attentive. And I suppose that's what you hear here is, is Mary and Joseph attending to the story of their own child which I suppose is, I mean, is just is actually a fundamental part of natural motherhood anyway, would you say, and fatherhood, parenthood? Yeah. Yeah. Well, just that sense of having to live it in order to know it, mm. that things can't be pre-known. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to bring us back to our theme of birds today, do you know anything about the significance of turtle doves? in this particular purification rite? Yes, they do. They have a great significance. So the way birds feature in the in especially the Old Testament is just fascinating. I don't know enough about it. I wish I knew more, but the one thing I do know is that um you know that 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 there that there's a strong sense in which there's a you know the animals that are mentioned have carry greater significance than just being representations of animals in themselves. So um, for the first thing to say is that, sorry, this whole sacrifice of purification or presentation in the temple stems all the way back to the to the first sacrificial rite of Abraham. So when God creates the covenant with Abraham, Abraham, he orders him to to get certain animals and to lay them in a line and to divide the animals in two. So their bodies are divided in two and placed either side of this 
line, which he will then walk through um, and as part of the process of making the government covenant. But he says not to divide the birds because the birds uh, have this greater spiritual you know, place in the in the hierarchy of of creatures on the earth. And so they mustn't be divided because only earthly things can be divided and spiritual things can't, which is really interesting anyway, that that's a feature of them. And then turtle doves are generally significant of a sort of faithfulness and loyalty and also a chastity that initially is the chastity and loyalty of a widow. So so it's interesting, I just noticed this actually, that, that Anna is described here as um, married for seven years before becoming a widow. And that's actually what the uh the symbol of the turtle dove how it's how it's uh, what it represents is exactly the character of anna mm. um, someone who takes them who removes themselves having been uh married because the turtle dove i don't know if this is true or not but this is how it was understood the turtle dove finds a mate and then that's their mate for life they never if that mate dies they will never find another mate and there's also a suggestion that the cry of the turtle dove is like mourning mm. so so they so they they came to represent the the widow who removes themselves from the world. So in some sense, Anna is a kind of exactly that, the turtle dove. However, later, so by the, I think it's the 8th, I was reading about this, the 8th century, um, and also later in medieval bestiary traditions, the turtle dove has come to symbolise chastity more generally, and so often is used to, pre- to, to represent the priestly life or the celibate life. Anyway, so that's where, that's that's what I can tell you about the turtle dove. So many meanings attached to just one bird. I think now would be a good place to move from the birds in the presentation into the birds in St. Kevin and the Blackbird by Seamus Heaney. And since Mr. T.S. Eliot did such a good job of reading his own poem a few weeks ago, I thought we could ask Seamus Heaney if he'd be happy to do it. And he said, that's fine. So here he is. St. Kevin and the Blackbird. And then there was St. Kevin and the Blackbird. The saint is kneeling, arms stretched out inside his cell, but the cell is narrow. So one turned up palm is out the window, stiff as a crossbeam, when a blackbird lands and lays in it and settles down to nest. Kevin feels the warm eggs, the small breast, the tucked neat head and claws, and finding himself linked into the network of eternal life, is moved to pity. Now he must hold his hand like a branch out in the sun and rain for weeks, until the young are hatched and fledged and flown. And since the whole thing's imagined anyhow, imagine being Kevin, which is he? Self-forgetful or in agony all the time, from the neck on out down through his hurting forearms. Are his fingers sleeping? Does he still feel his knees? Or has the shut-eyed blank of under-earth crept up through him? Is there distance in his head? To labour, sorry, alone and mirrored clear in love's deep river, to labour and not to seek reward, he prays. A prayer his body makes entirely, for he has forgotten self, forgotten bird, and on the river bank, forgotten the river's name it's cool isn't it yeah <laughs> what, what were your first what things first um flew into your mind when you read this well i like the start another another starting with an and yeah so we've obviously already been through a multitude of saints and then there was saint kevin and the blackbird of course 
that story. No, what I actually thought was this line, and since the whole thing's imagined anyhow, imagine being Kevin. Um, and that that kind of caught me when I was reading it through the first time. So so in this, the way that this is laid out, this poem, is that there's um, three line standards, stanzas, and there's four three line stanzas, and then an asterisk and a break. And then four more three-line stanzas. So, uh, and the, the the asterisk comes right in the middle of the poem, after the line, until the young are hatched and fledged and flown. And then you get this break, and then you have, and since the whole thing is imagined anyway, imagine being Kevin, which is he. So you're right, it's part of the poem that you can't, it's it's highlighted, you know, it's per, it's got its, its own asterisk to introduce it. And so you can't help sort of stumbling a on it a little bit and wondering what does he mean so yeah I, I definitely was caught up on that as well and since the whole thing's imagined anyhow and it could be it's just lots of different ways that that could be interpreted right because it could be there was no saint kevin or maybe there was a saint maybe there was a kevin but there was no um bird that hatched in his hands or it could be this is our only way of under of approaching a story like this that's come out of history is to imagine it mm. So we have to use our imaginations. It's not saying it's not true, but it's saying, look, this is how we engage with his, with, with the lives of the saints like this. You know, this is a sixth century saint, Saint Kevin of Glendalough, that's being that's being passed down to us. The only way, the only way in we have is through the imagination, through poetry, through, you know, the maybe embellished stories, maybe whatever it is. That's the world in which this person now exists. So we have to engage with it like that. And I and I favoured that last interpretation just because it's Seamus Heaney. He's a poet. His, his world is a world which is lived through the imagination. It's very vivid. But it's it's um it's also tricksy in the reading because his punctuation is um pretty wacky. You've got these enjambments between so many of the lines and the verses, so that the poem just kind of keeps keeps making you Go on. So like the first, to give an example of that, the first, I mean, as you said, it starts with ant. So you start right in the middle of the sentence. You start in a in a place that's a sort of, you know, not, not a grammatically uh, formal place to start, right in the middle with a capital A. And then there was St. Kevin and the Blackbird. And then in the next line, the saint is kneeling, arms stretched out inside. And then it gets to the end of the line. So it enjambs onto the next line inside his cell. Uh, but the cell is narrow, so and then you undrum all the way down to the next stanza. One turned up palm is is out the window, stiff, enjambment as a crossbeam. So I feel like all of this, that kind of squashing onto the next line, helps to give this sense of someone kind of cramped, things not fitting mm -hmm. into their spaces, you know, because it's all about this cell being narrow. When he prays, this is the whole first image. When he prays, kneeling with his arms outstretched, he actually has to break through the dimensions of his cell out the window in order to pray. Uh, and it's through that basic kind of inconvenience that then this whole occurrence happens, this whole great drama of these tiny birds laying their nest in his hand, which then becomes the whole life of St. Kevin as passed down to us today. Uh, you know, and I and I kind of love that as well that it starts with this practicality, <laughs> as it's because the cell is so narrow, one turned up palm is out the window, which I feel, you know, yeah. I mean, that 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 as well resonates as just like something really fundamental to to what we come to know of like the way God works in our lives, right? Is that often it's the thing that we think is going wrong that turns out to be the place where God, you know, grows his 
his purpose for us or or his you know the fruits of our lives um so the hand out the window that you could be ready to complain about come on god give me at least a cell that's just a couple of <laughs> like a little a bit wider inches wider and yet there, there they come and then the next uh stanzas in that first bit kevin feels the warm eggs the small breast the tucked neat head and claws and that feels like such classic heaney because James Heaney because it's that detailed attention to the sensation of of the natural world mm. which he knows so well from from having a very rural childhood and he often says that that's where his poetry starts begins is just in a memory of a sensation from childhood and so and I feel like I can hit I can feel that there and I don't know if you've ever had the experience of holding a a bird in your hand have you because I I remember it made me think of this time when I was on Linda's farm uh, the sparrows there had, there'd been so many visitors that fed them that they really, they were really quite brave. And one of them came and perched on my finger to to eat some bread out of my hand. And that sensation was like amazing magic. I'd never felt anything like it because you felt just the tiniest weight, barely perceptible. And yet this such, this this intensity of life, this little flame that flickered, you know, just on the edge of my hand. Uh, to eat from my palm and uh and the sense of that how delicate it was and how how you know barely there it was and yet it, the it's it, it being there was was so much greater than nothing <laughs> mm. um so so anyway so that's what immediately what that line brought conjured up for me the the feeling of a of a bird something that should that we use that we see far away in the air sort of distant ethereal being in the hand and then, and then that beautiful line, and finding himself linked into the network of eternal life, is moved to pity. What did you think of that as an image, the bird in the hand and the network of eternal life, and being moved to pity? I don't think I've got anything particularly profound to say. I just, I, I thought, I just thought it was really beautiful. I, I really enjoyed being told the story of Saint Cle- Saint Kevin in this form. Yeah. Um, I hadn't, I hadn't come across him before. And then it's just, it's so intimate and so, so much an act of attention Mm. and so much an act of recognition, you know, recognition of the bird in all that it is. It just, his response, his response to the situation is really beautiful and could only have come from his, you know, his relationship with um, birds and God and nature, because from outside you think also what that a bird's landed in your hand you know, it can make its nest in a tree. You don't, it doesn't need your hand. But his response is, it's chosen here and I will honour that. And sort of, yeah, make himself into a tree. And, and actually, I hadn't thought about it until you just said this, that then, but about, there's that image, isn't there, of the kingdom of heaven being like the branches of a tree in which all the birds... Yeah, the birds of the air will come and nest in it. It's the, is it the mustard seed? It's the mustard seed, isn't it? Mm. Starts out as the smallest seed. And then grows into this great tree in which all the birds of the air will come and nest. So in some sense, Kevin making himself this tree for the birds of the air to come and nest in is like embodying the kingdom of heaven, the refuge for the birds. Mm. That image of the kingdom of heaven. And I, and I suppose that thing is a prayer his body makes entirely. That kind of brings us back a little, well, brings me back anyway to the, to, to the liturgy, to what we were saying about liturgy earlier. Mm. That... Sometimes we think of prayer as being something that is uh, on our on our lips or in our heads, but there's this sense in which your body can also make a prayer or or be a prayer. I like that Heaney 
goes into the imaginative um, question of what it felt like. Yeah, that's really fascinating, isn't it? In and in a sense, because it's again, it's that trying to interpret what the world of that kind of prayer is. Does he is he in agony all the time from the neck on out down through his hurting forearms? You know, what does it mean to be attentive to the network of eternal life when you're in that kind of agony? I'm just slightly aware of the time. The other reason that I did choose this mm. is because it's about a bird and the had a bird mentioned in it. And mm-hmm. I love birds. Here's a question, Kate. You're really good at recognising particular birds. How did you learn which bird was which? Or like, how, yeah, how did, how did you do that? I, as a child... Um, my dad was always fascinated by birds and would watch the birds in the garden, not sit there and watch them. But when a bird appeared, he'd go, <gasps> you know, that, that inhalation and the excitement of, oh, that's a such and such. And mm. that was totally, totally infectious. And and also becomes I, I, I just became habituated to that. So that as I was growing up, the presence of a bird always brought excitement. It didn't matter what it was. Even if even the most common birds, in some sense, there was always a rareness about where you know where they were in relation to you, what their proximity was. There's this, you know, there, there's still something special about every occasion. And so I can remember we used to get, you know, chaffinches and lots of different kinds of tit in the garden. And but I can but the amazing thing about that actually is that I can I can remember pretty much everywhere, every place I've been when I first when I've seen a certain bird for the first time. So I can go through in my head because they became such special moments and go, I remember that the first place I saw a long-tailed tit was on the main road outside of Guildford. I can remember that the first place I saw, uh, you know, a chaffinch was on the magnolia tree in our garden. I can remember that the first place. So so they they have this incredible kind of, you know, powerful place in my memory, literally, you know, mm-hmm. literally kind of marker. And I, and I do put that down to my dad being so excited by them as, as we were growing up. Mm. What about you? That's so good. Oh no, I've only I've only got excited by them since knowing you. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I really, really um I really want to learn them. I really I really want to know yeah, know the different ones, but I'm only just beginning now. <laughs> yeah, I mean I think I think that when you start to do it, I don't know if you've noticed this, but you you do start to your whole relationship with a landscape can change in the same way that learning different plants can mm. um because suddenly yeah you're just more you as a you know you personally are more integrated into the world around you because you're seeing the detail you're able to distinguish that you it enables you to see better mm, mm. um and then it enables you to love better as well um and because then you're interested and your excitement grows and you know that this bird is different to anyone you've ever seen before. I think that that place of naming things, of knowing names, of making signs of birds <laughs> is a good place to stop today. We have been on a long meandering journey through liturgy, birds in the presentation, the symbolism of birds, the acts of attention in St. Kevin and the Blackbird, and now birds. And it's been wonderful. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, listeners. We will speak I'm to you sitting again. On the balcony, reading Flannery O'Connor with a pencil and a pen.
This song is like a rain cloud that keeps circling overhead. And there it comes. 